And again, it is a joy to be with you, worshiping with you. Um, I'm Silas, and if it's your first time or first time back in a while, we are glad to have you here especially. Um, I'm the interim lead pastor here, and welcome to Bethany Northeast. Um, it is a joy to worship and also a joy to, in some ways, be, um, in this particular day, closing out our series that we've been on. Um, if you haven't been journeying with us, we've been going through a series in First John, and today we are in our fifth sermon. So we've journeyed through this book quite a bit. We're wrapping up our series over the last four weeks, as we've journeyed, we've done things like we focused on confession and sin. We've looked at love, truth, relationship. And today, um, as, we, as we do it, we've wanted to, over the last two weeks, kind of engage the book and ask this question. How does this passage, how does this sermon, First John is a sermon that's written, how does that impact our lives and why does it matter? How does it impact our lives? Why does it matter? You know, from the previous weeks, again, we did a thematic look at sin and confession, which will carry through in some ways uh, today. We took a, a deep dive through passages about the Father's love. Then we also looked at images that open us up to understand what truth is. How does truth speak? How does it um, invite us to be open people in the world. But as we consider these questions, how does all of this impact our life? How does it shape it? I want to focus on the questions that we have as a congregation. How does that resonate with us? And so for clarity, from the beginning of the series, it's been important to build different concepts. We're going to Try not to do too much review, but it's important to get us to this last one. Because again, this book, 1 John, is a sermon. It goes from beginning to end, and it has this big conclusion uh, that we'll engage today. I guess, what does it mean, though, if we carry the threads of sin and confession that we looked at to shape how these last verses look at us. The book beginning, it begins by something very physical. It describes hearing, listening, seeing, what you've experienced, what you've understood. It starts with all of these very embodied words. He's talking to people to say, like, you have heard the gospel, but what does that do? What's it mean? How does it shape you? And so for us, in a moment, we're going to read our passage together. And as we're reading it, I want you, um, in the process of us reading it, to think of one question that this passage stirs up with you. Think of one question. And we won't all share it, but for some of us, uh, we'll invite you to dialogue in how we craft today's moment. So I want you to pay attention... a mentor once said, pay attention to all the places where you have the response of like, ooh, or ah, or aha, or um. Like, think about all of the different things that you hear when you resonate uh, with this text. And one of those, as it raises up a question, bookmark that in your mind. And then let's talk about it. How does this book actually impact our life? We could do a deep dive in the Greek and the structure and all those things, but how does that translate to where we are today? That's what we really want to dive into. And so if you would, um, 
I'm going to pray for us as we open ourselves up to the word and then uh, let, us, um, let us think of a question as we read the scriptures. God, we are grateful again for the gift of this day. We're grateful for this pause in our week. We're grateful for how you invite us to hear from you and speak to you. And so in this hearing, may these spoken words be faithful to your written word. Would it lead us to Jesus, the living word, and let us come to know you more. We pray this with Christ by the Spirit, and everyone said, amen. So our passage today is from 1 John 5, verses 16 through 21. And um, again, as I read it, pay attention to things that might be stirring as we engage. Verse 16. If you see a fellow believer sinning in a way that does not lead to death, you should pray. And God will give that person life. But there is a sin that leads to death. And I'm not saying you should pray for those who commit it. All wicked actions are sin, but not every sin leads to death. We know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning, for God's Son holds them securely, and the evil one cannot touch them. We know that we are children of God, and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come, and he has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. And now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. He is the only true God, and he is eternal life. Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. So chew on that. Sit with it. What questions does this passage stir up? The conclusion of a sermon. The end of 1 John. Thoughts, takers? Surely there are questions, yes. Yeah, there are those who commit sin. Yeah, should we not pray? It's, uh, is it verse 17? The end of 16 there? Curious verse, yes. Great question. Other questions? What do we think? Mitch? Degrees of sin that seems to be described in this passage, yes. Anyone else? What questions make you pause, stir? How do we keep things from displacing God in our heart? That's a great question. That's a great question. Anyone else? Alicia?
Yeah, so reaching back to a theme that we looked at in our first work, in our first week, we're going to explore that a little bit. But I want to wrap in these questions about what do we do with this, uh, this idea, like don't pray? What's that mean? I thought we're supposed to pray without ceasing. Pray for all. And so it's a question of what do we do with a passage like this? When we ask questions and we wrestle with them, one thing that comes out is we are doing the work of theology. The moment you start thinking and uh, dissecting and imagining what is happening from these, from these uh, words in the page to my life, we're doing the work of theology. And in that way, as we do this work, uh, we start to recognize that we, we get uh, revelation in, in, in a dynamic way. We start to recognize that ways we have heard this text or engaged this passage, um, it might shift as we know more of the world and as we encounter others and encounter others and God through others. And this is part of the dynamic relationship we have as people of faith, engaging the Bible and the scriptures in a particular way. Uh, Love L. Sechrist, she's a professor, a dean um, at Columbia. She talks about how this is known as associative hermeneutics, associative hermeneutics. What she's really talking about is there's a way of looking at our life and then making associations with all the things that we see in Scripture, all the questions that pop up, not just what's on the page, but the things that are formed in us, our imagination. How do we engage this book in a way that forms us towards God? Tying back to week one, like Alicia was pointing out, In week one, we started with this picture on the screen. We started with this little paragraph. And we asked each other, how many F's are in this paragraph? For those who were here, don't ruin the surprise. But how many F's are there? So we all stood up. And then I said, sit down if there's three. Some people sat down. And then sit down if there's four. Others sat down. Sit down if there's five. Others sat down. Sit down if there's six. Everyone else sat down. No one sat down for seven because there's only six. But there are six F's in this this paragraph. In some ways, they're hidden. And we ask that question, can you see what's right in front of you? We're all looking at the exact same thing. And yet, for some of us, we sat down with three, some with four, some with five, some with six. There's the F's and the of, if you're looking for them, and also in scientific So it gets a little hidden for us, but it's right there. It's right in front of us. Can you see what's right in front of you? We then asked, because we have a tendency to just sometimes miss or ignore, what's that mean about holding our answers? We don't want to hold things with closed fists. We want to be open to the way that we continually come to know more and more about God, the world, the scriptures, and how that informs our life. And so it leads us to this idea where in that first week we looked at how sin, for a lot of us, has tended to be a word that lands us in either this column or that column. You're either a saint or you're a sinner. You're, um, You're on 
the right side of the ledger or you're on the wrong side of the ledger. And we've talked about sin as something that puts you in one or another camp. Right? It separates you into categories. This is typical, typical of Western Christianity. Um, we also named that in Eastern Christianity, so there's a split in the Christian world between Greek-speaking and then Latin-speaking. This is partly based on language. We have, in the Eastern side, a more therapeutic way of talking about sin. So if on the Western side, sin is law, right? Sin is transgression of law, or sin is guilt. On the Eastern side of Christianity, Sin is described as sickness or illness. This is the metaphor that's the dominant one. It's not the only one. These aren't the only ways to parse out how to describe sin. But what we want to point out is there's different metaphors through all the scriptures about what is sin. And so if we imagine sin through the legal metaphor, that means forgiveness is understood as uh, clearing my name, right? Uh, Clean slate. I'm put in the... Uh, in, I have my status uh, updated, right? Like, I'm no longer a criminal. I'm saved. On the other side, if we imagine sin through a therapeutic metaphor, forgiveness is understood as healing. And healing is a process that, can, that happens in my life, but I'm continually becoming more healed. I'm being made well. And so we have this, right? We have this image of God as judge, God as physician. This is part of the Christian tradition. And it stands out for the way that we can read a passage like the one we read today. How does this impact our lives? How does it have any substance? Or why does it matter for us? If we take this thread that we looked at at the beginning, sin as an illness, sin that is being purged in us, that's being made whole, that's setting us on a trajectory to find wholeness and to discover what it means to be well. Think about how this passage we read today takes new shape. If you see a fellow believer sinning in a way that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give that person life. So there's this concept, right, of There are things in each of our lives that are killing us. They're destroying us. That is what sin does. It starts to choke the life from us. And so we pray, and God will give that person life. I will give them vibrance. He'll bring life to bear in that person's life. I think we can get on board with that. Whether you're Eastern or Western, we can agree. That's a good thing. That's a good trajectory. But then we get to this part of the verse where it says, but there is a sin that leads to death. And I'm not saying that you should pray for those who commit it. Literally, that last bit is concerning that. Uh, You should not pray for those concerning that. It's a tough word. Like, what do we do with that? I'm going to answer that question by bringing us to that story in Mark 10 with the rich young ruler. Remember that story? We have that story where Jesus is there and he starts on his way. A man, he runs up to him and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Then Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You should not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he says, teacher, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And then the text says, and Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And the way that most of the time we engage this passage, we think that his issue is that he has too many things. He has everything in the world. He has too much. And so give it to the poor. Divest yourself of your things. And then come follow Jesus. What does someone who has everything lack? The thing they lack is lack. He doesn't need anyone else. So he has everything in the world except for this one thing. And notice, Jesus doesn't say it's your money. He just says you lack something. The thing he lacks is the desire and the community and the relationship with anyone else that presses him outside of himself. He doesn't need anyone else. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus looked around and said to the disciple, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who um, is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said, who can be saved then? Who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. As we think of our passage and we notice the way that the man has everything he needs, he's self-determining. He's able to do what he wills. And one way, this is not the only way, but one way to make sense of that question you had, Lauren, of this passage of what does it mean to not pray for, um, for those who are sinning as it leads to death? The only sin that is that, the only sickness that is that is a choice that is so, uh, so held that you've already chosen your way outside of God. Now, what do we do with that? What do we do with this, this verse? Typically, in Christian tradition, um, is starting in the 1850s and on, this verse starts being pressed towards people who take their own life. and says they will not be able to inherit the kingdom of God. Is that true? Is that what this passage is saying? Sin as sickness opens us up to recognize that in the gradient of our life, in the way that we are all broken, we all have the tendency to shun God, to push away from God. That's what sin does. It closes us off from God and God's self. But it's like when C.S. Lewis says in The Great Divorce, at the end of time, there's going to be two kinds of people. There's going to be people who say, thy will be done, and people who say, thy will be done. There's going to be people who will choose not to acknowledge God at all. Choose not to acknowledge brokenness at all. Because we have everything we need. 
I wonder if that's one way to think about this passage. It's not the only way. It's not the only way to make sense of this. But it is a question that pops up to us. How do we make sense of these verses? As it says, I'm not saying you should pray for those who commit it. Concerning that, my question for us is, when we hear this, what's formed within us? What's formed within us? Maybe you're like, okay. Maybe you feel the indignation. Like, that can't be true. Maybe you feel a mix of something in between, of just mourning. Listen to that. This is how a sermon works, right? It isn't just what's said, it's how it forms us as we hear and listen. And the hope as we engage these verses and these passages is that the character of God is formed in us for others. The hope of God is formed with us, within us, for others. I shared last week how uh, one of my favorite theologians says that we are supposed to live our lives in such a way that we can hope for the salvation of all. We will hope that all will be saved. Dare we hope that all will be saved. This is one of the challenges that pop out from this passage. Another thing I want to tie out for us or to point us to is how in this we see that as we engage sin in this concept of sickness, something that destroys our life, that takes from us, and we tie that thread from the beginning of a verse that invites us to confess, invites us to bring our sickness, to acknowledge our sickness to God on the cross, the healing starts to come as we recognize that our lives themselves are being made whole in the act of confession. So all series, we've had post-its ready on the cross that we can put over here and write and say, there's brokenness in my life. Let me take my first step of acknowledging that I have brokenness here. There's things that are keeping me from meeting God. Things that are keeping me from loving my neighbor as God would have me love my neighbor. Things that are destroying my life. And so we've written things. We've put it on the cross as a symbol, a first act of moving towards healing. This is a good joy. This is a practice. This is a a good thing for us to do. But I also want us to recognize that in the course of our year, in the season we're in, we are starting to move towards Easter, move towards the season of Lent. And what we did this past week was we took all of those confessions And we burnt them. And we turned them into ashes. And we invite you in the season to come, in the week to come, to to participate in a couple things we have that will wrap us into the life of God. Our first thing is that we have these Lent kits here. We invite you at the end of service to, oh no.
uh, we invite you to take one of these kits with cards that have something every week during the season of Lent. And we invite you to pray and open up ways that this season, focusing on God, can open our lives up to the truth that God is. And so in these cards we have um, coming, it's from a tradition that's not as, sim- as familiar to us because um, in most of our experience we don't celebrate the whole season of Lent. But we have cards every week that are designed for families. They can be used by individuals. And there's practices on each card. Something to pray about, a practice to do, something to do uh, with your family. And we want to invite you, depending on the kind of bandwidth you have, to find a rhythm. There's just lots of options in this. Find a rhythm that helps you focus on God in this season. Helps you focus on the way that we are coming as broken people to the Lord. And that God meets us in the way that we posture ourselves and think about who God is. So we have that. But we also, on Ash Wednesday, which is this upcoming Wednesday, want to send you home with the ashes that we composted. The ones from the cross. And they're in these bottles here. It's all over there on the side. Um, and we invite you to grab that. We're not going to have an Ash Wednesday service. But the reason we want to send these home with you is because... In Christian tradition, we sometimes mark ourselves with the sign of the cross during Ash Wednesday to say we are dust. From dust we have come. From dust we will return. There's beauty in that story. There's also beauty in recognizing that as dust, the things that are destroying us, they can lead to life. We invite you, if you don't want to put it, sign of the cross on your wrist or your uh, forehead during Ash Wednesday, Put it in the garden. Let it do something. And notice the way that God takes our brokenness and our sin and this whole season that we're going to go into transforms it into life and life that gives life. We have these two things available. Again, they're over there uh, on the side table. And grab one um, of either. Tying back to this idea of us finding life and the whole sermon in 1 John being one that starts from saying, you have something in your life that is choking you and killing you off. And through this whole sermon, he circles this idea of confession and sin, loving neighbor, confession, sin, loving neighbor, love, justice, and light are the three themes that happen all through this sermon. It's hard to dive into this last chapter without recognizing this is like, it's like, you hopped into the last 10 minutes of a movie. We need to frame out what has happened so far. In this book, in 1 John, his trajectory has been one of healing. One to say, there are things in our lives, sin, that are killing us. And how how do we discover fullness, life, and God? We do it through confessing with each other and loving our neighbor. We do it through the embodied acts that invite us to see others well. As the passage continues in 1 John, we say, we have in verse 19, we know that we are children of God and the world around us is under the control or is surrounded by sickness, surrounded by evil. I think if we look around the world, we can find the contagion. We can see that we're experiencing that. In a variety of ways. Sickness shows up in so many different ways in our life. Literal sickness, but also 
the penchant to hate, the penchant to hurt, the desire and the appetites craved within us to uh, devour others for the sake of my own good. These are things that God wants to root out of us, that God wants to free us from. So confession works in a variety of ways. When we talk about confession and it uh, is something that releases us from uh, sin or addiction of some sort, addiction is crushing in our life. It keeps us from neighbor. Through the series, we made that distinction between love and lust. Lust is something where we uh, have a one-way relationship with whatever thing we are lusting after. Love is the openness for the mutuality of relationships. And so, yes, it's true. We could even be formed to lust after God. But recognizing that God invites us into this dialogue, into this relationship that goes two directions, that's part of the life that God wants to open for us through this, uh, through this season. And so we end with the, this verse, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and he has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. And now we live in fellowship with true God because we live in fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God, and he is eternal life. Friends, how might we find and live in relationship with this true God? How might we do that? One way is through Participating in practices that go far beyond our life. They go beyond our history. And so we have this idea that tradition is the living faith of the dead. As we go into this next week and this next season through Lent, we invite you again, in your own way, what feels manageable to engage some of the traditional practices that have been much longer and older than we are. Practices that reach back thousands of years. Practices that aren't tied up in traditionalism, but instead they, uh, they invite us into a living faith. Gustav Mahler, he's an Austrian composer, he is famous for saying that tradition is not the worship of ashes, but the preservation of fire. Tradition is not the worship of ashes, but the preservation of fire. As we participate in practices older than ourselves, the hope is that we start to rediscover different ways of engaging uh, the scriptures and engaging God that open ourselves up to how God wants to work in our lives. And so, we have some things to move into, and over the next couple weeks as we uh, go through Lent, we'll have places where we can look um, and engage the work itself through uh, the cards, the practices. We'll also be posting a lot of things online through our e-news and our social media to just invite us for uh, three minutes during a day to pause and reflect on God. The first one will come out this upcoming week where we, take, we invite you to take time, three minutes and ten seconds, to listen to a song. And you can do that with your family. You can do that on the way to work. But listen to the song. And let it open yourself up for a moment in the day to pause and reflect on who God is. 
on how we are dust, and from dust we have come, we will return. And yet when that breath of God animates it with life and makes it come into being, that's the thing that makes us alive. What sins are in our life holding us back from encountering the wholeness of God? The act of confession brings us out of that into a new version of life, a new vision of life. And so I want to pray over us that as we, in the next weeks, come into a moment of prayer, a season of prayer, our next series is going to be on prayer itself, um, I want to pray over us that we will have hearts to have this re- reciprocal relationship with God. One that opens ourselves up and it challenges our comfort. Our comfort of what does it look like to engage God in new ways. God is speaking through a variety of ways. We'll name through creation. We'll name through our neighbors. We'll name directly to us. And over the next series, we're going to engage prayer in ways that uh, transform and open our lives up to God and neighbor. But if you would, join me in prayer as we close out our time. God, we are grateful for the gift of this morning. We pray that if there is sickness in our life, if there is sin in our life, that keeps us from loving you and loving neighbor well. That keeps us from loving ourselves as you have created us to be. That you, by your spirit, would give us a sensitivity and a boldness to desire to seek help. To find wholeness in relationship, the relationships we have with the world, Also, the relationships we hold that no one knows we have. We pray you would transform our lives and make us whole. You are our great physician. And you desire to make things well. You're the potter. You make things come into being and you smooth out and form out things that are rough on the edges of our lives. You are the great builder. We'll celebrate and say ways that you build life and you invite us to build with you. All the metaphors that we have in scripture that invite us to discover the wholeness you give us and the, the wholeness you desire for us, we pray that we would discover that in ways that resonate in our own languages. Speak with us and speak to us in the season to come. May we come to know you more. In spirit, hover over the chaos of our lives and bring goodness into being. We pray this with Christ by the power of the Spirit. And everyone said, amen.